0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central podcast, making theology central. Better late than never, right? I mean, I know I was supposed to be doing this before seven p m. Central time, and now it's eight fifteen p m. Central Time, but better late than never. that That's what I'm telling myself. Good evening everyone. It is Monday, October the 17th, 2022. It is now currently 8:16 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And yes, even though it's late, it is time for us to try to bring at least the chapter analysis portion to uh, of the book of Amos to a well, satisfying conclusion, dramatic conclusion. Well, we're going to bring it to an end the chapter analysis portion of our study of the Book of Amos. We've done a book background. We've done a book survey. We've done a chapter analysis. And then we conclude, ultimately, we'll conclude our study with a book synthesis. But that's going to be basically more, that's going to be yours to work on. That's going to be you to work on. But I will probably do at least one podcast or two podcast episodes maybe offering some some concluding remarks some some major lessons some points of application uh, maybe certain things that stood out to me in the book of amos just remember the first step of doing the book synthesis portion of the study is to just reread the book two more times no notes, no, just read it. Just just drink it in some more so that when you're done with the study of Amos, you really really take it with you. So, make sure you start working on the book synthesis portion. We've reviewed it. I was going to do a little bit of a review of it right now, but um we'll we'll just focus on the chapter analysis of chapter 9, the the final chapter of the book of Amos, and then we'll see how to proceed. Uh, from this point on we may go back and do a little bit more work or analysis we will see we'll just kind of kind of get everyone's thoughts on what we have accomplished this is like i don't know part 27 part 28 in our study of amos we've spent that 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 basically makes about that that basically accounts for about 27 28 hours of work on the book of amos and that doesn't even count that's just 27 28 hours in front of a microphone that doesn't count all of the work outlining, reading, working on this, looking up commentaries, doing this, giving chapters titles, do it, and all of the things that we've been working on. So I, I truly hope that when this is done, I, I I'm I don't know how many people have participated in full. Those who have participated in full, I'm more interested in getting there. Like, okay, look. Here's what I got from it. Here's what I liked. Really, I, I, I'm just, I'm going to be really interested in the feedback from the people who participated. Those who only participated partially, I still will be interested to see what they got from it. And while well, if you didn't participate at all, I guess I would be interested to hear what you got from listening to the study the way we have presented it. Because I still think, even if all you did was listen, You got to be pretty familiar with the book of Amos now, all of the possible issues, problems, differences of interpretations. I still think you should walk away pretty well informed about the book of Amos. I, I hope so. All I can do, all I can do is turn on the microphone and do what I can and then hope for some kind of positive result. That's all you really can do. I can't control the results. All I can do is control the work we put into this. But are you ready? Now, Amos chapter 8, earlier today, man, left us with a lot of interesting things. Remember, uh, Amos chapter 8 is the vision of the summer fruit, and uh, we think that the reason it's a, a I, I'm going to go along with this idea, that the reason there was a vision of summer fruit is because summer fruit doesn't last very long. It's only, it looks really good. It looks tasty. It looks refreshing. It looks amazing, but it it, it goes bad relatively quick. And so I think the idea is that Israel looked like a basket of summer fruit. They looked amazing. They look great, but they're about to be destroyed. They're about to be, well, it's getting ready to go really, really, really bad for them. I think that's the basic idea. Jay Vernon McGee brought up the word of, he brought the word of the word harvest up and he had a kind of an interesting take that the word harvest really represents the end of a period of time. It really represents like getting ready for judgment. So then he went to the New Testament where the fields are ripe for harvest. And he said, no, no, that's not about evangelism. That was signifying that the end of a, a time had come. The, the end of the law was over and how the time of Christ was, was, had arisen and that we no longer go out to harvest. That that we we don't we go out to sow. God does the harvesting. We do the planting. So it's it, that was interesting. I still want to work that concept out a little bit more because it really doesn't have a lot to do with Amos. But we, yeah, that, I, I'm I'm still waiting for emails to see what people thought in regards to that. Then he brought up this idea that in Amos chapter eight verse seven, the Lord hath sworn by the excellency of Jacob that the excellency of Jacob is a messianic prophecy, that that refers to the Messiah. So you have God swearing by the Messiah. I, I, I'm, I'm not so sure about, we have some, he didn't, uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee did nothing to prove this, to demonstrate this, to even explain how he ero- how he came to that conclusion. He just dogmatically made the assertion. So we, we had some issues with that. Um, there, oh, another thing he did in Amos chapter eight. So throughout Amos, he's basically placed every verse within its historical context that this is dealing with Israel and the coming judgment by the Assyrians. But all of a sudden with no warning and no explanation and no textual justification, he read Amos chapter eight, verse nine, it shall come to pass in that day. And then he says that that day doesn't refer to the day of the Assyrians coming upon Israel, that that day refers to the great tribulation in the future. And I don't know how he came to that conclusion, but it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Um, he. I don't know what what justification he, well, he sees language there that he doesn't know what to do with, but he immediately is like, nope, that's the future. So everything in the book has been about a, a specific historical setting during the time of Amos. He rips verse 9, throws it to the future, then verse 10, I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentations." Then he turned that into an argument about, I guess, secular music, which again made no sense. But he put verse 10 back into its historical setting. Then verse 11 about a famine in the land he then applied that to his Dr. J Vernon McGee's current time once again ripping it out of context from the historical setting and then when he gets to verse 13 he returned back to Amos's time. It was the most bizarre like just art, just arbitrarily going that verse applies to this period of time that verse applies to this period of time and I don't need to explain how I came to that conclusion. I don't need a textual justification. he just made it happen some really interesting things. I'm hoping it sparks some conversation and discussion, especially for those participating in the study. And I would love to see what conclusions you came to. But that's enough of chapter eight. We have now, hopefully, a satisfying conclusion to our chapter analysis study of the book of Amos. Again, we're utilizing the teaching of Dr. J. Vernon McGee, They gave us permission to use their content. We're very grateful. And what we're trying to do with this is we're letting you hear his perspective. I'm offering my perspective. Sometimes there's agreement. Sometimes there's disagreement. But you benefit because you hear two different perspectives, two different interpretations on a a, a book that you may not be super familiar with. And hopefully you're doing your own chapter analysis. So if you add that together, you're really kind of getting three perspectives. And if you're checking commentaries, you're probably you're getting multiple perspectives And well, there's lots of, uh, I think that's a good thing to see the different perspectives and how people approach the text. But are you ready? Amos chapter nine, Dr. J. Vernon McGee is going to cover this entire chapter in 19 minutes, which of course means he's just skimming the surface, but that's okay. Um, that's all we really can do unless we turn this into like, we're going to be studying Amos for the next, I mean, if I was preaching through it verse by verse, it probably would take two years, but, um. Let's uh, let's see what we can gain from it. Are you ready? Notebooks open, Bibles open, something to drink. Amos chapter nine, we're there. We've made it to the end. Let's see what we can uh, take from it by the time this is over. Here we go.
1: Now we've come to the last chapter and it says here, verse one of chapter nine, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar and he said, smite, the capitals of the door that the posts may shake and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away. And he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Now, this is the coming of the
0: Assyrian. Okay. A couple of things. The King James says, upon the altar other translation says beside the altar, right? But please note, Dr. J. Vernon McGee now has returned to, oh, this is back to the Assyrians. See, it's always like, well, it's this time, it's this. Now now we're back to the Assyrians, which you can't have such a, a wacky, inconsistent hermeneutic. You've got you to make a decision. This is about the Assyrians and that, the judgment coming upon Israel at that time. And if you're going to say the passage jumps, which I know sometimes prophetic passages do that, You've got to be able to demonstrate the textual justification for doing so. For example, well, the New Testament speaks of it in the future. Like, or, well, clearly that did not happen at that time. Like, you've got to offer some justification for it. But he's now, this is back to uh, Amos seeing a vision, right? Seeing this, and it's about the Assyrians coming that's going to bring judgment upon Israel. All right, the northern kingdom, right? So... Let's, let's see. The language is interesting. Again, upon the altar or on the altar, does that, do you think that that has a, a major implication? Now, if you're not careful, see, you'll start going all symbolic. Oh, this represents this and this represents that. And a lot of that becomes very subjective, right? But let's see what he does with it.
1: To destroy the northern kingdom and to take what was left into captivity. Now, the altar that he's talking about here and the temple is not the one in Jerusalem. It was the one that was in Bethel and the one that was in Samaria, where the golden calf was. I've seen the ruins of the temple in
0: Samaria. Now I, I I think I may go along with that. You can tell me if you disagree. He's he's if he's standing upon the altar there, like he's standing on the altar. This is the altar where you worship your the golden calf and Bethel. This is where you worship your false gods, where you worship these idols. But God is standing upon it, demonstrating I am superior to your gods, and I'm bringing judgment. I, I think I think there 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 could be a lot of uh, truth for that. I'm I'm gonna just look quickly to see if the very first commentary I pull up. Does it agree or disagree with this? I I think that that's a. I think there's that's a there's there's good justification for that. I'm going to go to chapter nine here. Um. I saw the Lord stand. Now this one says standing by the altar and the final vision of Amos. He saw the Lord right at the temple, supervising the work of judgment. Amos wanted Israel to know that God wasn't detached from even his hard work of judgment. Uh, so they they have him, I guess, in like. The, the temple of God. I, I don't think they're, they're they're describing this one. Of course, this one not to those uh, to the false altars or to the wrong temples um, or the false temples. It says like uh, the boss of a demolition squad or the commander of an invading army. He snaps his orders for the smashing of the temple and takes personal responsibility for seeing that the last offender is brought to justice. Well, I guess you could make an argument now that I think. Well. It's the northern kingdom. It's not the destruction of Jerusalem. This, It's not the southern kingdom. This is the northern kingdom. So the temple, the things that are going to be destroyed are in Bethel, Gilgal, Samaria. It's going to be in that area. So it's got to be in the false temples, the false altars. That, That's – that's. I, I think I'm going to go with where, where Dr. J. Vernon McGee is going. It makes the most sense, but OK.
1: That was that. And the temple would be brought down so suddenly that many of the people who went in there to seek refuge would be caught, and they would be trapped in there and be killed in the temple because of the fact that they sought refuge there. Now, this is the judgment that was coming upon them. Now, up to this point, Amos has dealt with nothing in the world but judgment.
0: Okay, and like, I, I just pulled up some other commentaries really quick. The last vision is transferred to the shrine at Bethel, or Bethel, the seat of the calf worship. The prophet sees Jehovah himself standing in pomp by the altar of burnt offering and by uh, his side, the angel of his presence, to whom now, as on many other occasions, the mission of destruction has been entrusted. So I think that makes uh, sense. Uh, now, th- now well, another commentary, the next one says, the altar of burnt offering at Jerusalem. So this one has him standing uh, in Jerusalem, but the judgment is coming upon Bethel. It says here, um, the first sight to suppose that the sanctuary of the northern kingdom is the scene of the vision as the destruction of idolatry is here emblemized but mere but more probably Bethel is not meant now they say so this one argues against it so there's disagreement imagine that there's disagreement well, which one do you think this is a reference the the temple at Bethel or the temple in Jerusalem that he, that he that the judgment is coming from Jerusalem well that could go back to hang on let me go back to um Hang on, if we go back, well, if we if we go back to verse two, Amos chapter one, verse two, and the Lord, and, and he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. So do we take it back to there? Does it, does it have a profound impact one way or the other? You know, the Bible study exercise, I like to hand it to you more than give you an answer. I don't know, I, I'm part, well... Amos 1 Amos one, verse 2 makes me think, well, okay, well, I can see maybe you argue it's from Jerusalem. But it, uh, the King James upon the altar definitely makes it me sound like he's at the altar of Bethel. Like, look, you, this is where you worship your God. I'm above it. I'm upon it. And judgment is coming. But you, you, you can tell me what you think.
1: Judgment that was coming soon upon them. Judgment that's out under in the future that he identifies as the day of the Lord. And we believe that that's what the Lord Jesus meant and spoke of the same thing. And he called it the great tribulation period that
0: was coming upon. Now, once again, he keeps jumping to the future. You got to give me a reason why. Like, look, here's what this is just a basic rule of hermeneutics. Whenever you're reading anything in the Old Testament, any prophecy, first and foremost, look for a an, a, an interpretation and and a setting that deals with the people that he's writing to. In other words, it may be future to them, but in other words, look for a fulfillment that has been fulfilled in history for us. Look for something that was fulfilled 500 BC, 600 BC, 700 BC, 800 BC, 400 BC, 300 BC. Look for a fu- something that's been fulfilled. Keep the book in its historical context. If after looking for fulfillment after, tra- and you're like, it, it doesn't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work, then, then look to a future, and then before you even say there's a future, see if the New Testament references it. If the New Testament uses the language to point to something future, then you can, then, then, then you can start looking in that direction. But so many people will see something in like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and just immediately, oh, great tribulation, millennium, then it'll slow down look for things that would that would fit the people that would make sense to the people he's writing to look for a historical fulfillment future for the people who originally heard it but clearly history for us start there but man we want to jump immediately to the great tribulation the millennium Jesus coming back the rapture we want to jump to whatever kind of future event and it's like no this entire book has been focused on Israel and the judgment coming upon them from the hands of the Assyrians. It has a very historical setting over and over and over and over and over, and
1: over again. On this earth. Now, in this last chapter, we're going to see that for the first time, he looks into the future and gives the glorious prospect of the future. So in that very dark day, Amos is no pessimist. He looks way down into the future, and he sees coming a glorious day for this earth. I think that any child of God today ought to be an optimist. None of us ought to be a pessimist. No reason for it. Now, we have here a very significant and a very strong statement made. You find it made several times in the Prophets. I'm going to read it, verse 2 now, chapter 9. Though they dig into, our translation says hell, but it should be Sheol, that's the place of the dead, or the grave, it can be either. There shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there will I bring them down. Now, this is a very frightful statement. Fact of the matter is, there is the terror of the wicked, and there are two things that cause the terror of the wicked. that give any thought to this whatsoever. Most of them today have tried to blot it out of their minds. They've been brainwashed in this liberal society in which we live today. But the two things that
0: bring and to- just I'm going to say this for the nine thousandth time, over and over and over and over and over and over. Dr. J. Vernon McGee took the book of Amos and applied it more to the lost world than he did to the people of God. Let me remind you, Amos was sent to the nation of Israel, the nation of God, the people of God who were in covenant relationship with God. So I think the first application always to be judgment coming upon, well, Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Judgment, chastisement that comes upon us. The focus here is for primarily in the historical setting that, hey, Israel, there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. The Assyrians are coming. Judgment is coming. There's nowhere to run and hide from God. that's, That's the, we can't hide from God. We can't hide our thoughts from God, our actions from God. We can't hide anything from God. That, that seems to be the focus. But he loves to just put this on the world, the wicked, the world, the wicked, the world, the wicked, the heathen, the heathen. And I just, I just don't know why we always want to do that. But okay, let's continue.
1: terror to the heart of the wicked are the omnipresence of God and the immutability of God. Now, here we have the omnipresence of God. That is, God is present everywhere. You couldn't even go into death and get away from him. And the immutability of God is that God never changes. Never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, these two great truths are a great comfort to God's children, but they are terror to the wicked. Now, this is what I mean. The omnipresence of God to the child of God. The Lord Jesus said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Wonderful, is it not? Him that cometh to me. He says he'll never, no wise will he reject you. He receives you, and he receives you for eternity. No one can take us out of his hand. And if you're in his hand, you're very close to him, you see. And he uses the other figure of the vine and the branches. Well, I tell you, you can't get any closer to a vine then the branch, the branch is right close to the vine. So that the omnipresence of God is a comfort for the child of God, but for the wicked. The omnipresence of God is a terror. A great many people today commit suicide. They want to get rid of it all. They want to rub out life. One very prominent man here in Southern California committed suicide, and his note was, I want to end it all and get rid of this life. Well, he got rid of his problems here, and he got rid of a great many things here that were really annoying him. He was in deep trouble. But he didn't get rid of God. You see, death didn't separate him from God. God is there. And the psalmist, you remember David said, though I make my bed in hell, why, God's there, and that is in death. And though I go into heaven, I can't get away from him. You can't run away from God. Francis Thompson, years ago, wrote a poem. Actually, he didn't intend to be irreverent, and it's not irreverent. It's called the Hound of Heaven. He's right on your track. I don't care who you are. He's right on your track, and you can't get rid of him at all. And then, of course, the immutability of God. If God said back yonder in the Old Testament, he's going to judge sin... He didn't read anything in the Los Angeles Times today, and he could read a whole lot of liberalism there, and he didn't learn anything by listening to the Senate or the president or the college professors and presidents or the scientists. God didn't learn anything from them. He hasn't changed his mind. God never changed. He's Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and forever. And that's wonderful for the child of God as we said some time ago when we saw that passage in Hebrews, how wonderful it was that the same one who walked the Sea of Galilee and was so gracious, so wonderful, he's still the same today. And that's a comfort for the child of God. Now, let's move on here because we've got a great deal to cover. And he says, though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel. Now, My on Carmel today, and along the side there of that mountain, and the city's built along the side. I've been along there quite a few times, and there are caves there. And apparently, they would try to hide themselves there. He says, I will search and take them out from there, and though they be hidden from my sight in the bottom of the sea, there will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. (laughs) You may be able to get in a submarine go to the bottom of the ocean. God's there, friend. You can't get away from Him. Verse 4, And though they go into captivity before the enemies, there will I command the sword, it shall slay them, and I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. So the wicked today do well to fear God and to fear the future. And a man that commits suicide, thinking he's getting rid of his troubles, He's just moving into trouble. It's like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. That almost literally. Verse 5, And the Lord God of hosts is he who toucheth the land, and it shall melt, and all that dwell in it shall mourn. It shall rise up holy like a river, shall be drowned as by the river of Egypt. And I don't think you can go through that land without being conscious of the fact that the land that was the land of milk and honey, Yes, today, even with all of the irrigation, all that's being done, today it's not a land of milk and honey. It's far from it. A judgment has come upon it. I talked to a very fine Jewish couple. I met them in the elevator. They could tell I was a Gentile, I guess. And we began to talk. And they had come out to buy an apartment that they might spend. In fact, they thought they might retire there permanently, but at least part of the year. And he said very candidly, though we bought the apartment, we want to help our people in this land, we never expect to use it. Because he says, I don't think that this is the land that the Bible says that it is. And it's not. But of course, he just didn't read about the judgments of Amos on that land. Now will you notice verse 6, "...it is he who buildeth his chambers in the heavens..." and hath found his troop in the earth. He who calleth for the waters of the sea poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Now, who's going to do this? Well, I'll tell you who's going to do all of this. It's the Creator, the omnipotent God now that we're talking about. He's not only the omnipresent God, but he is the omnipotent God. And not only that, but when you move down through here, you get the impression that what he's trying to say, that everything that's in nature obeys God. The only thing in the creation of God that does not obey him is little man down here. Imagine a little man. There is the sun out yonder in the sky. There's the moon. There are all of these tremendous galaxies And all of the quasars, every one of them is obeying God, great big thing, obeying Him. He's made certain laws, they really follow it. But little man, no, little man, he's in rebellion against God. Now, here is one of the strangest statements in the Bible, and it's quite wonderful. Verse 7, "...are ye not as children?" Are the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel? God wanted to let them know how much he loved them. And he said, I love you like I love the Ethiopians." And I ran a series of messages years ago when Mussolini moved in to Ethiopia. You remember, took over the country for a while. And at that time, I said, it couldn't be permanent. And I made a study of the prophecies that concerned Ethiopia. It's quite interesting, and I can't go into that, but it's amazing the place that Ethiopia has in the program of God for the future, a nation that I guess most of us think very unimportant. But God says they're very important to him, by the way. And Now he says, have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. That's Israel. And I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. That is, as a nation.
0: Except. It's kind of interesting. He perceives that phrase uh, in Amos chapter 9, verse, where was it? Verse 7. Israelites, are you not like the Cushites to me? this is the Lord's declaration, or as the Ethiopians. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me? Now, according to one commentary, God also reminded Israel, yes, I brought you up out of Egypt, but I also brought the Philistines uh, from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr. Do you think you're so special that you've become proud and presumptuous? You are a sinful kingdom. In other words, I've delivered other people. You think you're so great because I delivered you. I've done the same thing to the other nations. So does he mean it in a like? J. Vernon McGee looks at it like, oh, I love you. I I love you just like I love the Ethiopians. Is that is that what he's saying? Um, it's, it's it's interesting that that's the way he interprets this. I'm gonna look at it. Uh, I'm gonna look. Let's see, real really quick here. Let see, I'm gonna look. I'm gonna go to. Uh, I'm gonna go to verse 7. I'm gonna look at this from an other translations to see or other commentaries. Right? Are 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 you? I'm going to read from a couple of uh, commentaries. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? Declares the Lord. Did I not bring Is, uh, Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from uh, Kaftor, and the uh, Arameans are, are from Kerr? In other words, I've done the same for other nations. Um. I'm going to see, see here, uh, Israel had presumed on the special favor of Jehovah. The prophet asked them whether after all they are better or safer than the Ethiopians whom they despise. He who led Israel from Egypt also brought the Philistines. So I think, I don't think this is like, Hey, I love you just as much as these other people. I think what he's trying to say, you, you need to understand that you think you're more, these people that you think you, that you despise and you hate, I did for them, but you've presumed that somehow you're special and wonderful and great, and so therefore judgment won't come upon you. I see this more as a, a a negative thing. As as a not like, oh, okay, he's gonna stop in the middle of these words of judgment and say, Hey guys, I love you just as much as these other nations. I I don't know if I see it that way. I don't know if I see it that way. You you again, you can tell me what you think.
1: Listen to this, that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. Now God says, the nation is through, but not the people.
0: God says, I will not destroy. See, verse 8 just seems to be a confirmation of that, right? Hey, behold, the eyes of of, of, of the Lord God are, uh, are verse 7. Are you not as the children of Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel, saith the Lord? Have I Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kersey? I, I, I did these other things to other nations, but you've presumed something. You think something that you're, you're somehow above judgment. And then look, verse uh, eight, behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the off the face of the earth, saying that I will, uh, earth, saying that I will not destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. For lo, I will command and I will sift as the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. See, they didn't think it was going to happen to them. They were being presumptuous. They were thinking that they were somehow, uh, okay. I, I, I think I don't think that that was a, a positive thing. I don't think he all of a sudden in the middle was like, hey, guys, I love you as much as I do the Ethiopians. I, I don't I, I, I don't quite see the way he was trying to make that work.
1: Then verse nine, for lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. Now you want to know where the lost tribe is. Get your telephone book. And look up the names, Cohen. Goldberg, I have received a letter here from a Jewish Christian friend of mine back in Chicago named Goldberg, and he's a wonderful Christian. May I say you want to know where the ten tribes are today? They are scattered throughout the world, and they're not lost as far as God is concerned. Will you notice? I will scatter them, sift the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is sifted in a seed yet shall not the least kernel fall upon the earth. God says, I won't lose a one of them. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sowing." Now, how about the sinners? Well, they're going to die. He will judge the individuals that won't turn to him. You have the same analogy in the church today. Not all church members are saved. I hope you agree to that. If you'd been pastor as long as I have, you'd know that not all church members are saved, but they're church members. Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. Not all the individuals are. Now, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the evil shall not overtake nor meet us. Now, we come to the wonderful part of this book, that is, the optimistic
0: part. Okay, now, this is where we need to take a little time, and I really, as you as you wrap up your study in Amos, this is where I really want you to give a little bit of attention because Christianity is majorly divided when it comes to the promises found in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, any of the minor prophets, uh, the major or minor prophets. There is a division within Christianity, all right? And this is the way it goes, all right? The, the curse, the judgment, almost everyone's like, yeah, that's upon Israel, that's upon Judah, that was literal curse, literal judgment, literally happened, literally fulfilled, boom. But there's always these promises that's usually, that comes in into close proximity with these declarations are these words of judgment. There's always these words of promise, of restoration, of being restored, brought back together, a time of peace, a time of, you know, the lamb laying down with the lion, this wonderful time. Everything's going to be wonderful. Israel's enemies are going to be defeated. Everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be perfect. Everyone's going to be going to Israel. Everyone's going to to be going to Jerusalem. It's going to be peace. It's going to be prosperity. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be amazing. And you have two really ways of thinking about these kinds of promises. One is... Those promises are not literal, they're figurative, they're not for Israel, they are for the church. Those are the blessings of the gospel for the church, for quote-unquote spiritual Israel. The judgment goes to physical Israel, the judgment goes to physical Judah, the judgment goes to national Israel, national Judah, but dun dun da da the promises are not for them, they are for you and for me. They are for the church, quote-unquote spiritual Israel. All right. So that is a, that is a very common uh, teaching. You'll find that in all millennial circles. And that's a very common. That's one way of looking at these promises. The other is like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. If the judgment was literal and if the judgment was upon Israel, well, the promises to Israel, they have to be literal. They have to be fulfilled. Now you can say were they, were they literally fulfilled? Like say when when Judah came out of Babylonian captivity, were they fulfilled there? Well, typically when you look at the promises, no way, not all of that happened. That didn't happen. Did that happen for Israel after they that when they went into the Assyrian captivity? Well, they never really come out of the Assyrian captivity. So it, it can't be. That, so what do we do with that? So then there's so there's the one. It will be spiritually fulfilled in the church, and it's not for Israel. It's for us. The other is like, no, it has to be literally fulfilled. It wasn't literally fulfilled in history. It will be literally fulfilled in the future. And then you place that basically during the millennial kingdom, during that thousand year reign of Christ, all of these promises that have never been fulfilled literally will be fulfilled literally for the literal nation of Israel. And Christianity is divided right there. People argue, people fight. Now, both are using the same Bible, all right. The same Bible, but they're coming to very drastically different conclusions. And it, and, and I think the, you say, well, what's the r- right way to look at it? Here's, I think the way that is most consistent with its hermeneutic. Because again, if everything in Amos about the judgment upon Israel is li- literal Israel, literal judgment, then why is the promise of restoration, why is that all of a sudden not literal and not for Israel? That to me is an inconsistent hermeneutic. If the judgment was literal upon a literal nation and literally happened, then the promises have to be for that nation and have to be literally fulfilled some way, shape, or form. That's the only consistent hermeneutic I can think of. So, but you need to be aware of this drastically different approach to the exact same script. You can get the exact same scriptures, give them to 50 people. and like, no, that's spiritually fulfilled for the church. Land isn't land. Land is power and influence of the church. This is, that's not Israel. It's the church. It's the church. It's the church. Read a Matthew Henry commentary. You'll see that continually. And then others will be like, what are you talking about? That's going to be fulfilled in the thousand year reign of Christ, which is a literal thousand years. And I mean, I'm believe we're in the millennium now. So, I mean, I mean, you can go through all the different perspectives. I went to seminary and Bible college and schools that were uh, all millennial. And I went to schools that were not all millennial. So I've, I've heard all of the views, had to write papers from, from different, different views. I know the views, but um, I just want you to be at least aware of this because when you get here to the end of Amos, Guess what we're getting ready to see? Look what's getting ready to happen. Here we go. This is what's getting ready to happen. Let me just read it to you. I'll read it from the King James because that's what I have in my hands. Here we go. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, now what day? Will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof. And I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old. Now people like, okay, oh, that's going to be in the church. That's going to be, that's, that's going to be the Messiah. They're like, try to find all kinds of spiritual ways to fulfill this. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Behold, the days come saith the Lord that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. So it sounds like it's going to be a time of great restoration. Everything's going to be, Israel's going to, in a sense, be back to the position of power and prestige, and it's going to be just over, it's going to be a time of great prosperity. They're going to have everything they've ever needed. Well, clearly none of this has ever happened in a historical way. I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. Well, when did did the northern kingdom come come out of Assyrian captivity? And I will plant them upon their land, their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land. And I will give them, saith the Lord thy God. Well, when did that ever happen? Even if you say, well, that, that happened with Judah. No, Judah came back from Babylonian captivity to only do what? They found themselves right back in. The, when you open up the book of, the, when you open up the New Testament, Israel is under subjection of Rome. And then 70 AD, they're wiped off the face of the earth. And even today, if you say, well, they're kind of back in their land, they, they still don't have control over everything. So this was never fulfilled. So you either have to say it's going to be fulfilled in the church spiritually, which makes no sense, or it's going to be fulfilled in the future, or God lied and the Bible's not true. Now, let's see what Dr. J. Vernon McGee is going to say about it.
1: Listen to this now. In that day, now we're moving past the time of judgment, the great tribulation. Listen to this. In that day, will I raise up the tabernacle of David that's fallen And if you want to follow through on this, go listen to James in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. He quotes this and he says that.
0: That's interesting. This is quoted in Acts 15. Everyone needs to find that cross-reference
1: that God today is calling out a people from among the Gentiles to his name. But he says, then afterward, he will raise up the tabernacle of David, and then all the Gentiles will seek the Lord. In other words, he's speaking of the kingdom, the greatest day that's yet in the future. He says, that is fallen, and I'll close up the breaches of it, and I will raise up the ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old." "...that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations which are called by my name, saith the Lord, who doeth this." And there be many nations that are going to enter the millennium. Verse 13, "...behold the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed." Now, I've said before, and here's the proof of it, that when the people are being blessed, the land is blessed. And when the land is being blessed, the people are being blessed. That land and that people belong together, and you couldn't untie them. God makes it very clear that when he puts them back in the land, that that land will again be the land of milk and honey. And it just doesn't happen to be that right now. So I take it the present return. They've returned to the land, but they have not returned to God. Now, he says, "...and the mountains shall drop sweet wine." And all the hills shall melt, and I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities. Now, God's going to restore them to the land, but not as a separate nation from the nation of Judah. They are together, and I think they're mixed all over the world today. This idea that Great Britain and the United States are the ten lost tribes, you contradict the word of God. God says, I've sifted them among all nations. Now, has he or hasn't he? Now, if it's just England and the United States, the Ten Tribes, then believe me, they're not sifted all over the world. We're very much stay-at-home folk. And we've got a few million people in this land of ours. So is Great Britain. They're not the Ten Lost Tribes. The Ten Lost Tribes have been sifted, but they're going to be returned. I'll bring again the captivity of my people of Israel." They shall build away cities, then inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Now, these are the things that God says that He's going to do for His people. He's going to restore the Davidic dynasty. And who do you think will be the king? Why, son of David, by the name of Jesus, born down in Bethlehem of the house and lineage of David. And he's to rule. And you will see Israel take her place among the nations of the world, no longer going to the United Nations with her hat in her hand, and no longer shutting out Arabs either, by the way. But a nation that's going to be blessed of God, and occupy a place among the nations of the world. There will be a conversion of the nations of the world, friends. The greatest time of salvation has already taken place before the church got here. Look at the city of Nineveh. When Jonah went there, we'll be there shortly. And the greatest day, though, for the history of this world is yet in the future, after the church leaves. Now you have... Also, the land is to be blessed when God puts them back there. And the curse of judgment is upon them today. And they're going to rebuild their cities. And they're going to be there permanently. Now, it's the belief right now of several expositors of the Word that are outstanding that the nation Israel may be put out of that land again before the end time. That's something for you to turn over in your thinking, by the way, today. And this brings us to the end of the book of Amos. I reluctantly leave it, but next time we'll be in Second Peter. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.
0: And that concludes Dr. J. Vernon McGee's study of the book of Amos. Here's what I want to do, and I want to drive this point home. As we've been reading the book of Amos, reading it and reading it and reading, it and, reading it and reading it and reading it. It's words of judgment, words of judgment, words of judgment, words of judgment. Words of rebuke, words of rebuke, words of rebuke, words of condemnation. Judgment, condemnation, God has sent his prophet to tell the people of God, in a sense, the nation of God, the people under covenant, that they have forsaken God, turned to idols, that they had treated the poor in an incorrect way, ungodly, ungodly, wrong, 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 judgment, 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 judgment. But the book ends. After all of those words of judgment, there is the beautiful words of the promise of restoration. And I still believe that the average Christian and the average church, we do not have a robust theology of restoration. We, the conservative churches may have a robust robust doctrine of rebuke, of condemnation, of church discipline, but we don't seem to be very good or strong in the idea of restoration. People sin, people fall, people fail. People make horrible, 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 horrible mistakes. Those mistakes cannot be overlooked. Those mistakes have to be dealt with. Those sins, we'll call them sins instead of mistakes. Those sins have to be dealt with. There has to be confront, confrontation. There may have to be a rebuke. There may have to be some form of discipline. But everything from the rebuke to the confrontation to the discipline, it's all designed for one purpose and one goal. That is restoration. What we want to do is find the people so that we can either say, that's it, you're done, you're finished, you can never do, we we got to give all the consequences, you can't do this, you can't do this, you're disqualified from this, you're disqualified from this, you're disqualified from are you're you're finished, you're done, you're done, you're finished, shame, public humiliation, gossip, slander, let's tell everyone, and we want to destroy people. The goal is you, you do whatever, you do only what is necessary, telling only who needs to know. I'm not talking about illegal matters. Illegal matters have to go to the authority. But you do everything you can to, to handle the situation in a godly way to bring the person or persons from sin and condemnation and judgment to restoration. The goal is to be restored the goal is to be restored and here, no matter how bad Israel messed up, God, was, God promised them and we believe it will be literally fulfilled. Israel, all the promises will be given to them. They will be fulfilled. They will be back in the land. All the blessings, it will occur because God chose them. God elected them and God's election is eternal. It cannot be overthrown because of our sin or our failure. Now, they may have to be rebuked. There may have to be a period of time, but there will be restoration. Christians, we want, we like to expose. We like to shame. We like to gossip. We like to destroy. We don't like to go, wait, whoa, 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 wait, 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 someone, what happened? Someone did this? Okay, okay, stop talking about it. We don't need to share all the details. What can we do to bring them back, to restore them? To, to reset the bone so that it can be, they're, they're like the bone is broken. How can we reset it so that it can be useful again? We want the people who fall to be useful in the kingdom of God, not to be like, nope, you can't do this. You can't do that. We, we just want to immediately remove people. All of Christianity is made up of sinners who sin. You've got those who sin and, quote-unquote, the mortal sins that everyone is horrified by. But everyone's committing the, quote-unquote, venial sins that I guess everyone is okay with. But you've got those who, quote-unquote, get exposed and those who don't. But everyone sitting in the pew and everyone standing in the pulpit, we're all sinners. And whenever the sin happens, yes, there has to be confrontation. No one should turn the other way. No, there ha- it has to be dealt with, and it's it's maybe painful, maybe humiliating, it may be horrible, but you have to repent. And you know what you have to do is everyone should come together to say, re- let's reset the bone, let's reset the bone, let's put a cast on it, let's let it go. Let's it may take some time, may not be able to do anything for a while, but then the goal is to get you back on your feet to be used by God in whatever way is possible. I don't think we have a good doctrine of restoration. We have a good doctrine of con- condemning. We have a good doctrine of bringing our rocks to the woman caught in adultery, ready to stone her to death. We're really good at that. We're really good at wanting, oh, 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 there's, there's, there's someone in the church, 1 Corinthians, who is sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, let's get him out. Let's, let's, okay, well, let's rebuke him. Let's excommunicate them. Remember, Paul had to write them back going, let the person come back. (laughs) There's restoration. We have to believe in restoration. Amos, this book of judgment ends with this beautiful promise of restoration. Now that's specifically for Israel. But the promise of restoration should be for all of us. Someone who's overtaken in a fault. Those who are spiritual should seek to restore the one. To bring the one back. We want to humiliate. We want to question their salvation. That's the first thing we want to do. Well, they're probably never even saved. Probably not saved. I don't know how a saved person can ever do that. Why did they do that? Did you hear what they, we don't even, it's almost like the, our the first thought is, oh, wait, wait, wait. It's not like emergent. It's not like, uh, Our first thought is not like a battlefield medic, right? When someone is wounded and they're hurt and someone screams out, medic, medic. Well, the medic grabs their bag and runs, got got the red cross, runs right out into the battle to go and render aid to that person to get them back to uh, the medical tent. Maybe have to take them to a different echelon, uh, echelon of medical care so that those person can be restored, in many cases to be restored, so they can go back into the battle. Someone's yelling and screaming and hurting. We're like, oh, oh. And said so we, we don't grab our medical kit. No, we sit around going, oh, wait, wait, whoa, well, what? Hey, get, just get on social media and let's tell everyone. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what so-and-so did? Oh, oh they're, they're garbage. They're, and talk about them and condemn them. No, don't. We don't stop and go, shh. Let's go run there with our medical kit. Let's put the pieces back together. Why don't we have a doctrine of restoration? When right here in Amos, we have this beautiful picture that God said, hey, Israel, you've messed up beyond all comprehension. Horrible death is coming. Destruction is coming. But restoration is guaranteed. Yes, you can look at all the words of judgment, but I want you to carry from the book of Amos the promise of restoration. And I believe it's a literal restoration that will happen to literal Israel and a literal future. And if it's not a literal restoration to a literal Israel, then God's promise and God's election is not sure and we can't trust in our own because God obviously threw out Israel. He could throw out us. All right, you can email me your thoughts about all of Amos News, if at yahoo.com, news, If at yahoo.com. That's news, I-F at yahoo.com. All right. Um, if you hear this, we did a about an hour-long discussion today about Jonathan Kahn's book, Return of the Gods, which we believe is majorly problematic. Uh, the, the audio is not perfect because we had to – I don't have the equipment really set up to be able to do that kind of podcasting um, with someone in a different location. I know other podcasters are like, it's so simple. Okay, I, 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 I'm, I'll still learn. I'll try to figure out how to do it. But currently, that, uh, that broadcast is only available on the Church One app or the Sermons 2.0 app. It's currently not available anywhere else. So if you would like to hear that episode, Church One or Sermons 2.0, look up Theology Central and then look for The Return of the Gods discussion and, uh, well, let us know what you think. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great evening. Thanks for studying the book of Amos with us. We'll have a couple more probably episodes dealing with it. Start the book synthesis portion of your study, bring this study to a dramatic and powerful conclusion that it has a profound impact on your life. Thank you. Everyone have a great evening. God bless.